Hey y'all, this is Connie Morgan back in the new year with season two of the Free Black Thought Podcast. The first season was a huge success. Thanks to you, our listeners. We had a lot of great guests, but I'm going to be honest, season two might just top season one. We have a lot of great guests lined up and we are starting off strong with my guest today. So be sure to subscribe at our Substack at the Journal of Free Black Thought to help us continue to bring you this awesome content. Dr. Tiffany Victoria Jones is my guest today, and you probably haven't heard of her yet as her story has not gotten media coverage. Tiffany has the makings of an academic powerhouse. She has her Master of Social Work from the University of Missouri-Columbia and a PhD from Howard University. Her specialization is in data analysis and psychosocial interventions, so it should come as no surprise that she was enjoying a budding career as a research methodology academic. That is, until her students revolted against her and her leadership assisted in her cancellation. For what crime? Tiffany dared to ask students to define gender and refused to only teach the postmodernist perspective on gender. For this grave offense, Tiffany was removed from her classroom, and while she is technically still employed by the university, who we will not name for legal reasons, she is no longer allowed to interact with students and has been assigned to administrative duties, which means no teaching, no researching, no nothing. Tiffany is still in a legal battle with her university in the name of truth and fairness. We're honored that she's taking the time to share her important story with us, because you know the deal. There is no such thing as the Black perspective, just Black people with perspectives. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Tiffany, thanks for joining me here today on the Free Black Thought Podcast. I'm very excited to hear your story as sort of an on-the-ground person who's living out what has happened in the universities, in our, in our school systems with the wokeness, with the lack of diversity of thought, with the indoctrination all that kind of, I don't want to say good stuff, all that kind of bad stuff. We're going to get through where your career has led you now in your current situation and what you're doing now to sort of fight back or and, and, and live what you feel is a morally uh, correct way to be an educator, to be in this system. But first, let's just rewind. Let's take it back and start with where did you grow up? How were you raised? Where are you from? And where has your life, how has your life led you to where your career is today? Okay. Well, I, I'm from the greater New Orleans area. I was born in New Orleans. I was raised in Metairie. Metairie is a suburb right outside of New Orleans. And I, uh, my parents uh, were, were married for about five, six years before they got a divorce. And when they got a divorce, uh, my mom moved us uh, to the Metairie area before we lived on the West Bank of New Orleans. So I, I was raised in Metairie with my mom and two sisters and a brother. I have more siblings, but that's who I was raised with. And uh, I was always a um, star student. I loved school. And actually, you know, when I think about when you ask me a little bit about my beginnings, I actually started school late. Um, and that was because I have a lung condition that I was born with. And the doctor told my mother not to even send me to school. He told my mom and my dad, she's not going to even graduate from kindergarten. And so um, I didn't, I was. Because they said you were going to die? Like they thought it was fatal? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. They, okay. Yeah. My mom was in a support group um, with women who, um, who whose children had the same lung condition 
it's a congenital lung condition. It's genetic. And all of the women's children died, all of them. My mom's child, me, I was the only one who didn't. Bless the Lord. Yes. And not that their children died, but that I'm yeah. Yeah. I'm here, you know. So I he told my mom and my daddy, I was not going to go to school. Don't get close to her. Don't befriend her. Oh. You know, take care of her, but don't befriend her. She's not gonna be here long. Yeah. And um what horrible advice. Yikes. <laughs> I wanna meet that guy um today. So yeah, so I didn't go to school um, for some time. I would watch other kids get on the, the big yellow bus, and I talk about how I wanted to go on the bus. So my mom was like, well, she looks like she's doing all right, so let me let me just send her and see what happens. And so to that doctor, I have had five graduations. <laughs> oh. So that I'm very, I'm, I'm very grateful for. And I, this is a, a part about my life where I, I just, I can't shy away from it. It's so important is my faith. I don't actually come from a Christian home, but I, I developed a faith in, Lord, in the Lord when I was nine years old. Wow. For, through a neighbor, a friend, my, my closest friend, um, her name is Felicia. And that, that just, it just changed my whole life. And so didn't have a very good childhood. My mom was sick. Um, She had a lot of mental health issues, alcohol problem. So it was really difficult. But after I graduated from high school, I I, I managed. I I managed. And so I I got through high school. I'm a pretty strong student. Uh, For undergraduate school, I went to Dillard University, which is right near my, my, it's right in my hometown. So that was a good thing. I didn't have to go far away. Um, I got a degree in print journal, um, mass communication with a concentration on print journalism. And then I switched gears. I wanted to do something. I wanted to do a helping profession. And I really wanted to understand more about my mom and what was going on with her, you know. So I decided to get a skill set in psychotherapy. And the way I'd get that skill set is through social work. So I told my brother to pick a state and I'll pick the school. I told my brother to do that because he's so good with, he's autodidactic. He's taught himself so much. He, and he's uh, he learned geography very, very well. So he, he as I can trust him to not put me too far or whatnot. So he picked Missouri because he said it was close, it was out of Louisiana, close enough for me to drive to if I um, drive back and forth if I needed to get back home. So it's a 10 hour drive, uh, maybe a little bit longer than that, to get from Columbia, Missouri to New Orleans, probably about 15 hours. But I was um, in Shreveport at the time. So to get from Columbia to Shreveport would have been a 10 hour drive. This is another part of my background in terms of how we even got to Shreveport. Hurricane Katrina happened in 2005, and I was still an undergrad uh, going to Dillard, and it was my last year. When the hurricane happened, we went to our sister school. I was in, I was with the the university, and so um, we evacuated to our sister school in Shreveport, Louisiana, 
uh, with the sister schools called Centenary College. And a woman said that she was going to open up her house to a New Orleanian. And I was terrified. I'm like, I don't know anything. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, I don't, I just, uh, it was, it was such a devastating time. I think it was about a hundred of us that evacuated and only three of us were from New Orleans. So the three of us could not go back home. Our homes were destroyed. So um, this lady, her name is Nicey. And I think that's so apropos for who she is. Her, um, she opened her house. Um, her sister lived with her and they opened their home to me, just a, a New Orleans hurricane person. And it, they picked me. So if they, the, 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 the administration, they, they're like, okay, well, here's somewhere where you can go until your family pops back up. So that's how I ended up in Shreveport. I adore, I adore her. She is my godmother to this day. We've never lost contact. And so that's how I ended up in Shreveport. Well, anyway, I, out of Shreveport, my brother put me in Missouri. So I went to the University of Missouri at Columbia, Mizzou, to get a social work degree because social work would take me to that get me that skill set that I wanted, and it was also very versatile. That's key to my story for later. After graduating from Mizzou with a, a master in social work, I went to, I wasn't really ready to go and help people with their lives and, and mentally, like, oh my gosh, what if I hurt someone who's depressed? I, I wasn't ready. So I said, well, let me let me keep going to school until I feel a little bit more comfortable with this. So I just picked a school, picked, um, and I wanted to go back to an HBCU. That's, um, I, it was a different experience at a PWI. Um, I, I don't, I would never tear down PWIs, but what I know about, what I, what I experienced about an HBCU having gone to Dillard is um, that community, just being around my race and intelligent people from my race and this whole world of intelligentsia of my race. So I wanted to go back to that and Howard came up as the first um, on the Google search it was the number one um, HBCU that um, had a school of social work and a top school of social work at that. So I went to Howard in DC and I continued a social work degree. I got my PhD and along the way, I ended up um, getting a skill set in research methods. So that's gonna come into play later as well. Um, I'm, I'm heavily trained in quantitative research methods, trained in qualitative as well, but got a wonderful skill set. And after that, I started teaching. Um, I started teaching. I, I went straight from graduating and right into a position three months later. Uh, and, and so I've been in academia ever since. All HBCUs until recently, until 2020, I started working at a PWI, and then in 2021, got a full-time position at that same PWI. Okay, and what are all the different courses that you teach? So I teach mostly in the research sequence. I've taught mostly in the research sequence, and so that entails research methods. Um, and that's really how to do a research study, from the crafting of the research question all the way to 
I teach data analysis. <laughs> so how do you analyze and interpret that data that you've collected? So I teach the full gamut of research methodology, statistics. I teach bivariate statistics, advanced statistics, multivariate statistics. I've taught also, uh, it's called HB, uh, H, um, HEPSI, uh, Human Behavior in the Social Environment. And that's really uh, a course on these different theories that help shape what we're understanding, help explain what we see. That's, that's the HEPSI course. I've taught psychopathology. That's fun because everybody knows somebody <laughs> who, who might be struggling mentally. Psychopathology is a course that covers the DSM, and the DSM is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, and it has a listing of all, all, I say that in quotations, all of the mental illnesses there are. I don't know if it's all of them, but, or even there are some that are in there that mm, kind of make you scratch your head. That's even that in and of itself is very questionable, the DSM. So I, I teach that class and, or I've taught it and it's a lot of fun. It's because, and then other thing that it does, it helps you to um, have more empathy for people when they're struggling psychologically. I taught a policy course and that's actually the class that was in question. I taught a policy course and the crazy thing about it is when I was at Howard, I, that was one of my favorite classes. Didn't know why I was having to take a social welfare and policy class at the doctoral level. I'm like, should I have taken this at in my master's program? Why am I taking this? I took a policy class in my master's program. But at Howard, the class was so enlightening because it was so different. It, it gave a totally different lens and it taught um, about black social work. And whereas at um, the PWI at MU, I really learned more about um, social work from a, a white perspective. And, and, and what I mean by that, I should change that language, not so much a white perspective, but more so um, the contributions of white people. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask you, what's the difference? What's the major <laughs> distinctions? And is it just who you're studying mainly? Oh, it's and it's the approach um, with with social work um, taught from that white uh, lens. I don't know an, a, another way to say that, but for example, we we started off talking about Jane Addams and the work she did, and it's not to discredit her work at all. It was important. Um, we talked about a lot of um, white contributors to social work, the profession of social work, and that's wonderful. But at Howard, I learned about social work before it was called social work. Hmm. And the, the black people who made contributions to this profession long before it was ever called social work or before it was ever crafted as a, a profession. And I'm gonna go all the way back to Harriet Tubman. Um, someone like her, she was doing social work and at, a, at, a, at a, a remarkable level, you have a woman here who is enslaved but get breaks out, gets her freedom, and ends up taking, helping about 400 people to not be enslaved anymore. And um, that was so powerful to me to learn that. And I learned that in that, that social welfare and policy class, I'm like, why do we have to take this? Uh, you know, I'd heard about T Harry Tubman, never heard about her 
within the social work context. Yeah. Learned about Ivy Wells and her boldness, her feistiness, and how she was so influential. Again, before this was called social work, this was a woman who was exposing the horrors that were happening in um, Black communities, especially the lynching um, um, horror. So she, KKK would burn, she was also a print journalist. And she was, um, she had her, she had her own building and she was producing news stories for the black community about the black community. And she ended up, uh, the KKK burned her building down, um, three times. If I remember that correctly, they burned it down. She built it back up, burn it down, build it back up, burn it down. I'm building it back up. Every time you burn it down, I'm going to build back up. And I just, I was so inspired by that. The spirit of it, like her resilience, her strength, she was able to work internationally to get the lynching, the anti-lynching bill um, passed here in the United States. She went over to Great Britain and worked with them. So I just, I say that to say, we learned about social work from a really different perspective in terms of the work that Black people made prior to its actually being called social work profession. We learned about the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs and all the work they were doing in the black community. And they were doing work really, um, we learned about Mary McLeod Bethune, a host of different people. The work that E. Franklin Frazier, the names keep coming. But we learned about these people in terms of providing, meeting the needs of the black community. What are the needs? Like physical needs, um, socioeconomic needs, things of that nature. So that's, I think that's a, that's a major difference in contrast to, um, for example, the, the women's rights movements. I think this can be a parallel to white social work. I say that in quotes and black social work. With, with women's rights movement, white women really focused on liberating themselves from identity labels, such as wife, such as mother. They wanted to focus more so on how they can reach their full potential as people, as opposed to black social work. Again, I say that in quotes as well. Those, um, they were focused on meeting the immediate needs, um, the, 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 the needs. What, what do our people need? How do we get them resources? How do we get access to resources? That was the main focus. And so the lens is different. And, and, and so that's, I got ahead of myself. I meant to say, I was talking about white, the white women's, the uh, women's rights movement from a white woman's lens. The women's rights movement from a black woman's lens was to really um, take care of the needs of the people mm -hmm. versus identity issues. Mm -hmm. And I, that's what I meant to say is that I, I think that parallels well with the differences between how social work is approached from um, from um, the, a white lens, if you mm -hmm. will, versus how it's approached from a black lens. Okay, so that you have a really interesting background because especially, I mean, not even just, there's lots of people who have different kinds of degrees that maybe are or aren't related, but you carried kind of all your educational experience through to when you were teaching, you were kind of teaching, you had your foot in both worlds in the sense that you had, you were teaching kind of more hard science and you had a foot in the softer science too, and and these two kind of 
different world and we're going to get into this kind of the wokeness or the the critical race theory or whatever that's infiltrating universities a lot of the times at least the either the last departments to get hit or maybe they never get hit at all are more of those hard sciences the stem fields and stuff where they're just they just operate in the black and white we're over in the college of humanities right it's a different mentality different approach it's a lot more subjective but you have your foot in both worlds so at first when you're talking about teaching all these statistics type classes and stuff i was like well where did the i'm really curious to hear where the kind of like wokeness started to creep in but you're saying but you actually was that policy class was where you first started to notice this and what did you notice what what started to happen as you were moving along in your your teaching career oh wow okay um so well it's are you asking specifically about the policy class and what happened there or what happened in the policy class and if and if my assumptions about um, kind of more of the STEM fields, the the hard science being less penetrable by by wokeness. You can correct me there too if you saw it. If you saw it kind of in every class, everywhere in the policy courses, just where it really like hit you in the face, or was it this policy class that you were like first exposed to what I think you deem as sort of this toxic ideology? Okay, absolutely, one billion percent toxic ideology. Well, I did see kind of creeping in, even in the the more uh, the black and white courses, the black and white court, black or white courses like um, research methods, statistics. Those are really they're they're supposed to be undergirded by science. We use a scientific method, and um, for that you have clear definitions. You have transparency of methods. You have, and you, it's really supposed to be very clear. And whatever you say, you're really supposed to be able to um, support with facts. Yes. Um, but it kind of crept in a little bit with when I would start talking about, um, for example, levels of measurement. Levels of measurement are really important. What that means, just generally speaking, is you have a variable, it has to be measured. All variables are measurable because that's the nature of a variable. It's a concept that is measured. Mm -hmm. And so um, the measurement is, um, is assigned a level of measurement. Levels of measurement um, include nominal, ordinal, interval, and ratio. And the nominal one is the one that you kind of see that wokeness kind of creeping on in there. Nominal and ordinal level variables are your grouped variables, race, gender, marital status, uh, political affiliation, where you're in a group mm -hmm. and they're mutually exclusive groups. So you're in one group or the other. And that's kind of where it would creep in. I'd have students ask me questions, for example, like um, when I'm teaching on uh, nominal level, and I, I, I long since long since have stopped using gender as an example. I let the students, if they have questions about it, I'll let them use it as an example and teach on it from them. But that's where it would creep in. You know, when you're teaching about, when I'm teaching about gender and those mutually exclusive groups, the mutually exclusive groups, meaning you're one thing or the other, are male, female. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. 
So students would say things like, oh, um, oh, well, what about um, transgender? And so I'd have to do this whole um, thing of, okay, all right, you have male, and what is a male? A male is a, an animal or a human that has um, small mobile gametes, mm -hmm. okay? A female is an animal or a human that has large mo mo immobile gametes. A transgender person has what type of gametes? Mm -hmm. And so the students would be like, well, it depends. Um, it'll dep it depends on if you're a transgender woman or a transgender man. Okay, continue. Um, so like if you're a transgender woman, then that means that, you know, you'd have um, small gametes, but that's not mutually exclusive for male, mm -hmm. which means it's the same thing as a male. Yeah. And the same with transgender woman or transgender man. That's, oh, that's a person that has um, large gametes. That's the exact same definition as a female. Mm -hmm. So now we're back to the original two right. groups. And that, for, for a lot of students, explaining it that way, because the groups have to be mutually exclusive and have to be, um, they have to yield the same interpretation. A good example of that is political affiliation. A, political affiliation is a, um, a, a, um, a group of people who support a specific party. If you're a Republican, you are a member of a group of people who support a specific party. If you're a Democrat, you're a member. You're a member of a group that support a different um, specific party. It has the same interpretation, and so I think explaining that um, that that's a, a, a feature of these variables and the mutual exclusivity piece that you, it's you're one thing or the other. Mm -hmm. You're not both. And so explaining it that way for a lot of students, they're like, oh, I get it. So I think approaching it, it from a logical position, that was able for um, that was able they were able to better see. Okay, I get it. Were you getting any guidance from above, from higher, on how to approach those kinds of like gender questions or whatever? Or were you given the total freedom to address it how you wanted to address it in your class? Um, just generally speaking, I was given the total freedom to address it how I wanted, but that would change. Okay. And that would change with the policy class. Okay. So let's dive into that. Tell me about the policy class. What happened? Well, the policy class, for one, I wanted to teach that class. I'd never taught a policy class before. And I wanted to teach it because, um, like I said to you, I fell in love with that class at Howard. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to be so fun to teach. I'm so excited. So when I was asked to teach it, um, again, I usually stay in the, the, research sequence, but I was asked to teach that one because they needed someone to teach it. And I was able to teach it. Everything was going fine. We So we had a, an interesting thing to happen. The class opened during the time of Hurricane Ida. And when Hurricane Ida happened, um, we, we ended up having to um, be out of school for, I think, about two or three weeks. And then we started school online for a number of weeks, so about two weeks. So um, 
about two or three weeks. And then we finally got to class. So all the time that we had been online, everything was going fine. Okay. It was our first class in person where everything just went bananas. Okay. Was teaching a session on hegemonic masculinity. And hegemonic masculinity is this type of masculinity that's deemed as an ideal type of masculinity where the, the man has power, he has prestige, he has access, he has resources. Um, it's the ideal form of, of... Who defines that or where did that ideal standard come from? Is that just, is that based on... Um, well, you just answer it. If I have holes to fill, I will. Sure, no problem. That comes from, uh, it just, it's a term that comes out of gender studies. Mm-hmm. And, and, when, and this idea of talking about, it's within the context of hegemony, which is power, but, um, in contrast to disempowerment and di- um, disenfranchisement. Okay. So it's within that context. Okay, okay, sorry, continue. And, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> a good example of... Um, a student gave this example. I said, that's perfect. I'm stealing it. <laughs> she gave the example of, example of Captain America. I said, that is a perfect example of um, an, what is considered an ideal man mm-hmm. in terms of power, prestige, wealth, all of that. Yeah. So we had this fun conversation. Um, we started, one of the students brought up women's birthing practices and how that's affected by um, hegemonic masculinity. And what she said was, I've never given birth, and so I don't know that experience other than what I've ever seen on television. You know, the lady laying on the, the table with the doctor, ever, you know, looking to get the baby out, mm-hmm. and she's pushing he 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 and all that. And the students are like, oh, there are the ways. I'm like, oh, share with me. What do you have? And they gave different examples of how some across the world, some women squat to give birth, some women give birth in the bathtub, different. It was, it mm-hmm. was great. As we're exiting that conversation, because so this was one section of our overarching class for the day. As we're transitioning, I'm literally saying, y'all, that was so enlightening. Um, thank you for sharing. We're going to move on now. Before I could finish my statement, I had a young lady who said, wait, 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 wait. I just want to say something. We should not say women give birth because not everyone who gives birth is a woman. Mm. Does that make sense? And the class went dead silent. Everyone just froze. Mm -hmm. She stared, she looked at me and she said, does that make sense? And I said, no. I paused. I was in silence like the rest of the class. But then I said, no. And she goes, oh, well, what I'm saying is some men have uteruses. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. And she goes, does that make sense? I said, (laughs) no. (laughs) I said, what are you you talking about? And she said, well, I'm talking about trans men. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. You tell me what a trans man is. And she goes, you don't know what a trans man is? And I said, you tell me what a trans man is. Mm-hmm. And she said all this talk, and she was talking so fast. Talk, 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 talk. Just a bunch of stuff. But saying enough, but not really saying anything. 
absolutely saying nothing at all. The, the, the gist of her statement was her statements. It was a, it was a long paragraph worth of stuff. The gist of her statement is that a trans man is in essence, a woman who believes she's a man. Mm-hmm. And she, the young lady ended with, when you use gender language, you cause harm to um, the, the transgender community and whatnot and non-binary people and you're, you're causing harm. Remember that 40% of this community commits suicide. Mm-hmm. So she looked at me again and she goes, does that make sense? I didn't want to say no to her again. Yeah. And I didn't want to say no because I'm like, okay, let me just use this as a teaching moment. Okay. To answer her question, does it make sense? Of course not. No, it doesn't. First of all, that 40% number is um, is inaccurate. It's actually 45%. Mm-hmm. And that 45% number that, that's about uh, the number of people who are members of the varying homosexual groups who commit suicide, they, they, it, it, that's horrible, first of all. It's very, it's daunting. It's a daunting um, number for, the, uh, for that outcome for members of our population. But the issue at hand is that that number is taken out of context. And there's an awful lot of that tactic happening. So it's taken out of context. Um, just to put this out here, the, the, the numbers, the countries that have the highest levels of acceptance of homosexuality, Sweden being the highest at 96%, um, our country is really high at 73%, um, UK, a lot of European nations, right. North America, these countries also have the highest rates of suicide within the homosexual groups. Mm-hmm. Something we you cannot turn a, a blind eye to because the argument is, well, you're not accepting enough. Wait a minute. There's a, there's a disconnect. There's a problem here when we look at this, these numbers. Right. And to, so and to draw the parallel just with the black experience in America, black people weren't, ex- weren't accepted. If that's all it takes to have a high suicide rate, people aren't accepting you. Then you would expect black Americans to have a really high suicide rate, especially in the Jim Crow South, which we, they did not, right? So clearly Absolutely. it's not a direct link. It's, you know, causality, correlation, all that kind of good stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And exactly. There's no link. It's not a link and it's, it's, it's not even correlated. That's the thing, you know, it's certainly not cause because an element of causation is correlation. Mm-hmm. In order for you to say something has been caused by something else, it has to be correlated first. It's not even correlated. And to your point, oh, that's so, if that's a brilliant parallel, because when you look at the horrors that black people have faced, and I mean abject horrors, we're talking about people being cooked, yes. being raped, being hanged, entire identities being stripped away, schools being burned down, homes being burned down, banks, cities that they've built up being burned down, wells being poisoned with animals, dead animals, their food resources and food supplies being damaged and then destroyed, them being take, having um, accesses um, to recess, taking access to resources taken away from them, children on buses being turned over, mm-hmm. children in churches being killed, the horrors that have happened to black people in this country. If all it took was to not be accepted, we would not be here. 
<laughs> it'd be a hundred percent suicide rate. <laughs> Full blown obliteration of this right. race. There's some deception there in it, in terms of that statistic. But the other piece to what she said, and I had to I had to say, well, wait a minute, no, we need to talk about this. Because in my classes and really in our, our syllabus across the classes, we're not allowed to tell anyone in the class how to speak. Um, I'm not talking about in terms of decorum. You know, you use professional language, of course. Um, you, you, you know, you're not reckless with your speech. So that, yeah. But in terms of how to think, we have a whole section called guideposts. And whoever wrote it, I think he did a fabulous job with really shaping an environment in a class where everyone's voice is heard and respected. You don't have to agree. But you do have to show respect. That is the expectation. So no, no, no. We don't say we should not do something. No. If you don't want to do it, you don't do it. Mm -hmm. You can go around calling women uh, mothers. You can call mothers gestational parents mm -hmm. if you like to. Yeah. By all means. But you can't tell the person sitting next to you yes. that they can't call their mother a mother. Right. <laughs> or they can't call themselves a mother. You yeah. can't do that. Mm -hmm. So that was an issue. All that said, um, what I said to her, I said, well, let's talk about this. What is gender? That's the question. You know, I don't know if people are still wondering today, what did she say? What is, oh my gosh, what was the anti-LGBTQ statement that she made? What was the homophobic, queerphobic, I still don't know what that is, <laughs> transphobic statement. The statement was, hmm, let's talk about this. What is gender? Mm -hmm. That was the statement. Mm -hmm. She said, initially, gender is anything. It's everything. It's whatever you want it to be. So it's nothing. <laughs> exactly. I said, okay, okay. So I picked up a marker. I said, so is this marker gender? And she goes, well, no. So I picked up a napkin. I said, is this napkin gender? And she goes, well, no. I said, is it clear now that gender is not anything and everything and whatever you want it to be? She goes, well, Yeah. I said, so what is it? What is gender? And she goes, I don't know. Mm. I said, okay, well, that's fair. I'm going to come back to that point. I said, that's fair. You don't know what you don't know. So the other students were like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this only for so-and-so or can we chime in? I say, yeah. what do y'all say? Let's talk about it. So what we did for about seven minutes is we talked about the difference, if there is one. And I think that's very important. Yeah. If there is one between gender and sex. Um, and that's all we did. That's all we talked about. I drew a line on the board, sex on one side, gender on the other. Um, I think I started off with gender. That's right. I started off with gender and then sex on the other side. The students could not come up with a definition for gender. They could not. So I said, okay, let's, let's move on to sex. I think once we talk about what sex is, then that'll make it a little clearer what gender is or might not be mm -hmm. and the students go okay okay so they were eight they were able to do the sex part oh yeah it's sex, uh, gender and male female gamut based organism or um organisms humans um humans or animals good we got that down let's talk about gender now and they couldn't do it even when we went back to it after clarifying sex they simply couldn't do it do you, think there were, do you think there were people that wanted to do it and they were scared or do you think they truly the whole class couldn't couldn't say it. Were the people that you could see wanted to give a definition were like, I don't want to get eaten alive by my classmates? 
Well, I don't, I think they have been taught that gender and sex are distinct. Mm -hmm. And that's, they've been, that's been drilled in their heads. Gender is your feeling about your sex. Sex is your, um, your, your biological makeup. Mm -hmm. Okay. If we go with that, then we have some issues. First of all, there's an, there's an error in reasoning called reification error. So that's something else that I teach because I'm trained in critical thinking. So I teach about errors in reasoning and things of that nature, mostly in the research class because that's where it's most appropriate for designing studies. But when we get to um, a situation where we're conceptualizing any type of um, variable or, um, or um, concept, we have to be able to distinguish the abstract from the concrete. And what happens with reification error, what has happened traditionally, traditionally with reification error, is traditionally we've taken these abstract concepts and we've tried to make them concrete. Mm -hmm. Concrete as in this is this is a cup here. You can see it, you can touch it. Yeah. Concrete as it's measurable. Abstract as in this is not measurable. And so um, we have to do find ways to make it measurable, such as self-esteem. There, you cannot see self-esteem. Mm -hmm. You cannot hear it. You can't touch it. It has indicators. And so these are the issues that, um, that, have, that have happened with a lot of these concepts, gender being one. If it is indeed distinct from sex, gender being one, the issue of making it Taking, you know, I really shouldn't even say that gender as an um, abstract concept, because it never was an abstract concept. But other concepts that have been abstract, um, trying to make them concrete. What's happening with gender is the opposite. It's mm -hmm. the reverse. And I don't, I have to look into this. I don't know if this is an, um, if there's another name for this. But what's happening with something like gender is that you have this concept that they're saying is, um, th let me back up a second. Sex and the, the way the word gender ever came into existence to mean sex is gender comes from the word genre, means your kind. So when you ask someone initially, what is your kind, what is your gender? They're really asking, what is your kind? What kind are you, male or female? And the reason why that was asked that way is because the term sex was taboo because it has the dual meaning of the right. ultimate form of intimacy, right? Yeah. And so people were like, oh, that's a little taboo. We need another word. So that's why you'll see on medical forms how it still says gender, and underneath it, it says male or female. Mm -hmm. It's because the terms were synonymous yes. for hundreds of years. Yes. In comes the 1970s with John Monet and his study, which was the methods are just were done so poorly, but his study was to see if gender and sex are distinct. His study actually, uh, to summarize it really quickly, he used a, a case of a little boy who'd, whose penis had been amputated, I'm sorry, um, burned very badly through a um, circumcision and they had to amputate his penis so that he could, wouldn't get gangrene. So, um, the question was, well, can we use this little boy and raise him as a girl? Okay. That was a David Raymer story. He ended up um, committing suicide. Okay. 
after learning, you know, he was actually a boy all along. Right, but I right. say that to say that they, um, the, this idea of gender versus sex came into play in the 70s. And even though that seminal study showed the opposite finding, that it's not distinct, that they couldn't get this little boy to act like a girl or be raised as a girl, even though it showed that, they've been going with a false finding ever since. Mm-hmm. So when you ask me, do do I think that the students know that? I don't think they know that. I think they've been taught that gender and sex are different. But mm-hmm. the reason they couldn't answer the question as to why they're different is because they've never been taught why or why they, they, they don't know why. So they've just gone with, oh, gender and sex, you know, gender and sex are distinct. Why? They don't know. Because somebody told me they were. <laughs> Right, exactly. Or I read it in a book. That's the reason why they couldn't, they could not separate the concrete um, ideas from gender. Mm -hmm. Well, now you're getting into reification error. And that's a problem when you mix the abstract with the concrete. That's an error in reasoning. Nobody has corrected this. So these students just believe it. Um. And so they were trying, it was a lively conversation until the young lady, she starts slamming her stuff in her book, in her bag. She starts slamming her books, her grabbing her pen, sipping up her book bag so aggressively. I'm like, okay, now wait a minute. So we ended up stopping the session. I said, well, let's, let's do this. We're going to take a break. I said, y'all, let's, um, let's keep something in mind. We're in academia at your house sitting on your porch, shooting the breeze with your friends. You can say whatever you want, but in an academic setting, you have to be able to support support what you're saying with logic and reason. If you can't do that, it might be a good idea to change your idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, we went to break. I thought it was over. That was it. Moved on to a new topic. The very next week, I had to teach on an actual session on sex, gender, race, ethnicity. Okay. And when I taught those sessions um, or those topics, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't want to deal with this anymore. What I did was (laughs) race and ethnicity, they didn't have an issue with, but sex and gender, they did. Mm -hmm. I presented both theories. One that gender gender and sex are um, distinct that's what they, they already believe that. And that comes from a body of knowledge called postmodernism and social constructionism, which comes out of postmodernism, which means there's no truth. Yeah. You make truth to be whatever you want it to be. All right. So then I taught from the, a different lens. I always give dual or competing um, lens, lenses. How it should be. Yes. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> so the students can get both and they can make a decision for themselves. Right. So I taught the other theory, which is that sex and gender are not distinct. They're, syn- they're synonyms. So gender is a merely a synonym for the word sex. That's how it came into being in the first place. And the implications of that are if sex is biological, gender is as well. Mm-hmm. If there are only two sexes, then there are only two genders because they're synonyms. So what I did when, to present that one, I presented an essay by the man who came up with the theory that not only is gender a social construct, but sex is a social construct too. Mm-hmm. 
So in other words, your reproductive organs, they're, they're not real. It doesn't matter. They have no implication on you. They're just there, basically. That man who wanted to do a provocative dissertation, fast forward to 2018, wrote an essay and said, I made it all up. His name is Christopher Dummett. He said he made up his theory that sex is a social construct. Interestingly, that's the theory that's governing a lot of laws today, especially in Canada and here in the U.S., all the transgender laws and stuff like that. Those laws are based out of this theory that sex is not um, uh, that sex is a social construct. This is why you have ads with, oh, um, always saying, oh, you know, um, not everyone who has a cycle is a woman. So that's why they removed women from their packaging. Yeah. You know, that's why you have the whole bathroom issue. Who goes in what bathroom? It comes right. from this theory that sex, this is why you have this whole idea of men giving birth. To give birth is an action, okay? And it comes, it, it, it's facilitated by process, by organs that are real, okay? That are measurable, that makes these concrete organs. This is how you get this idea that, oh, none of that's real. There's just, those are just labels, female, male, those are just labels. That man wrote an article, an essay in 2018, I believe it was 2019, one of those years saying, I made it all up. Christopher Dummett is his name. I presented the article and the students went nuts. <laughs> they went nuts. It was called transphobic. They said, I hate transgender people. What? What kind of leaping? They, they were saying you, you as the professor hated transgender people. Yeah. Yes. And um, they were crying. So when you, when you say that your students went nuts, do you mean like literally uproar? Like they were yelling and crying and like the class was just noisy and people were freaking out? If people were freaking out. It was an uproar. In fact, because of what had happened the week before, this the, a professor i'm saying it was a week before it might have been the week after I, I don't i don't remember yes 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 i said that wrong so the the statement about men giving birth happened one week then we had another session after that it was pretty quiet for the most part outside of a student yelling abortion is spectacular a non-sequitur came out of nowhere and she yelled out abortion is spectacular like, oh my goodness. Okay. So I don't write a letter to my students. I'm like, y'all, we got to get on track. Our class is going in a way that I don't appreciate. Mm -hmm. You are free to express yourself, but you need to be respectful of the class space. This is a class. We're in academia. You're not at your house. The week after is when I had to do the teaching on sex versus gender. Well, by this point, the um, chair of the program, she started sitting in on my classes. Mm -hmm. So the week after the situation where the students said men give um, have uteruses, that week after that, from that point on, she started sitting in on the classes. Did she start sitting in because you raised a, a flag or because students went to her and complained? Students went to her and complained. I also let her know what happened. Okay. Because they're like, oh my gosh, I've had this great class all up until this point. And now the students seem very upset. Let me just tell you what happened. Okay. So she when she came in, it was... Uh, she came in. So on this particular day, when I presented that article, she pulls out her cell phone. Students start pulling out their phones and like, they're like, hmm, 
He was not well cited. This isn't a peer reviewed article. It's an essay written by the person who wrote the theory. Right. Right. And she, so here's the thing about that. If Elber Bandura, who's the founder of social learning theory, came out 30 years later and said, hey, y'all, mm, yeah, I didn't really do a study to test if we learn things from people we've watched before. I didn't do a study on that. Sorry, I made it all up. There would be an uproar. People right. would be like, what in the world? Mm-hmm. You, you, follow, you fake researcher? Yeah. You liar? Yeah. It wouldn't be, but it would be, it would be appreciated that he made up his theory and appreciated in the fact that he's coming out to say that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not appreciating that he actually lied, but appreciated that he made the, uh, that he's telling us, I didn't test this theory y'all. So what in the world is different with this man, Christopher Dummett saying, Hey, y'all summer down, y'all are putting people in jail. So you're finding people. Ah, stop everything. I made it all up. And that's, those are his words. Which actually, on his part, that actually takes some courage. Like, I hate that he lied and that he made it up to begin with, but at least he did come out and say, whoopsies, once he saw the damage that he was doing. it. But then people don't even want to hear it. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, they didn't want to hear it. We went on a break. Oh, before we went on a break, she was, the lady was saying, um, the chair, she was like, this is from a Christian um, website. My God, the Christians have entered the chat. <laughs> Christians. Oh, no. And the students, that's when they lost it. They're like, what? What? I said, oh, my goodness gracious, what is happening? So I said, okay, let it, let's do this. We're going to take a break. Let's take a break. On the break, because I do 15-minute breaks, she comes in about halfway through. And I'm sitting there just like, what in the world is going on? She comes in, and she's like, um, I need to talk to you. I have students in my office crying because they fear that what you've said is dangerous. This is transphobia. I'm like, what is transphobia? And she's like, this article that you presented, in that same conversation, she told me, I cannot present alternative ideas. Mm-hmm. Or even if they were the original or traditional idea, can't present it. I have to present postmodernist perspectives. I said, I'm not going to do that. That's that's against everything I believe in. I will teach postmodernist perspectives because they're relevant to today, but I'm not going to only teach postmodernism. Not happening. So after that, the backlash was unreal. The young lady who initiated the whole thing filed a formal complaint against me. She rallied up some of her friends. They... Um, got together, they talked about how how I I was transphobic and engaged in transphobic, trans gen, transgender exclusionary behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, she's not no one what is this? Who how? Explain it. So it was found that I did not discriminate against her, but that I bullied her. Okay. I said, okay. So I looked up the definition of bullying. Bullying has three components. One, that there is a power differential between you and the person. Okay, that checks. I'm her professor. She's a student. Two, that it's an ongoing type of poor treatment. Well, that doesn't check. That was my first time meeting that young lady. Mm -hmm. I don't even remember seeing her in the online classes. Yeah. I met her one time from start to finish, 10-minute interaction, 
there's that that doesn't check. And number three, it has to be intentional harm. You have to intend to harm somebody. And my argument was something must be wrong with you if you think that me saying what is gender is intentional harm. Right. Yeah. Who has a definition? So I'm gonna ask that y'all remove this this accusation of bullying. Well, their response was to turn it over to Title IX, which means now I'm being accused of sexual harassment. So turns out they actually didn't proceed with any charges, but the aftermath was terrible. We had to, as a school, we had to watch five trainings um, on affirming homosexuality. And these trainings had, it was, they were just so nonsensical. I mean, there are nine different sexes. Why? Because. Okay. (laughs) Next year, there'll be 10. The year after that, there'll be 15. Yeah. Yeah. There are a hundred different genders. Um, If your child says they're a plant, they're a plant. Mm -hmm. So my child's not a human. My child is now a plant. If I follow that through to its logical conclusion, I'm never going to feed my child. I'm only going to give my child water. Never going to clothe my child. Never going to, the child won't live inside. And CPS will be at my door. So is the plant example, like literally the example they used? Literally the example. If my child says they're a puppy, okay, and I say, oh, let's change your name to Fido, and I'm going to take you to school, Fido, on a leash, and tell the teacher, "This, this is Fido now. This isn't Jessica. It's Fido. And Fido can't sit in the cafeteria with everyone. Here's Fido's food. Here's Fido's kibbles and bits and water. Fido can't go to the bathroom. Fido has to go on the front lawn. By the way, you make sure you pick that up. Okay? CPS will be at my door. Yeah. So what are we doing? Mm-hmm. It's a full-blown lack of reason and, and, and sensibility. We had to do, and then I had to have ongoing personally i was made to have ongoing conversations with a lady who calls herself herself she one week and they the next i am not making this up i believe you (laughs) i had to have um ongoing um, conversations with the director of our um teaching learning um our, our, our pedagogy type um organization on campus so in other words they help teachers teach Um, They help professors with teaching skills, which is pretty cool because a lot of professors, they know their their, um, area of expertise. They don't know how to teach. Right, right. So it makes sense to have that. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And it was nice talking to her. It was great. I learned a lot of things. I never learned that men were women, though. That We (laughs) never got there yet. What else? Oh, my gosh. I had to have my classes observed. I had to have, it was, it was just a lot. It was a lot. Um, and then I had a disastrous meeting around May of 2022, where the students had, by this point, launched a revolt against me. This is the following semester. And that's what their words were, a revolt. Mm-hmm. We're going to launch a revolt against her. And they did. They did it through the student evaluations and mounting complaints, complained about everything, anything. So they, um, they launched their revolt, and I was told all these things, false things. Oh, you don't ever show up to class. You, you're late for every single class. Well, let's make that make sense. If I don't come to class, how am I late? 
okay, you know, um, yeah. you don't prepare for your classes. So I just go into class. Hey, y'all, I'm here. What are we learning today? <laughs> Foolishness. I mean, total nonsense. Um, and it just, it, it turned into, to where I am today, it just escalated to this, this horror. Where I am today is I've been removed from my classes. At so some point, you, I, I should so say. So all, all of your leadership from the chair and everybody else, based, nobody had your back. Is that the truth? Correct. Um, the, the, the dean, the chair, no, they, they didn't. What about they your peers? What about other professors? Did you have people quietly saying, this is crazy, or anybody publicly supporting you? What was the dynamic there? I had one person publicly supporting me, and that was before I even learned of the revolt. A student told me about the revolt, that it was going to happen. Before I learned about the revolt, and by the way, their goals were pretty lofty, to get me fired and to get me blackballed from all American universities. That was their, that, those were their goals. Prior, so prior to my learning about this, um, one of my colleagues had gone to the dean to tell him, this lady's being called all kinds of names. I and, transphobic, queerphobic, homophobic. She hates her, her transgender, her homosexual students. I'd like to say something about that. The young lady who filed the complaint in the first place was my top student. She had an A in the class. Mm -hmm. Top student. And so she had an A weeks after, because I've been grading assignments all along. She had an A weeks after she, I actually learned she had dropped the class. She mm -hmm. never came back. But I still had great assignments right, to grade. Right. So, um, you know, the, the, the lady who supported me was like, you know what? I don't think this is right. Um, we are not, we shouldn't allow students to slander our professors because that's what this is. And um, the response to her was, well, they're free to do whatever they're, they, they are free to think however they choose. Interesting. They're free to think however they choose, but so I'm not. not. No. Right. So that was the response to that. When I actually talked to him about the revolt, his response was, right, right, right. You're being blackballed. Um, um, the, the whole world is against you. You're being persecuted. You're, it's a conspiracy theory. Right, right, right. That was his response. So, Which no is what the student is basically accusing you of, right? He's making light of what's happening to you. And they're literally telling you that they're going to revolt and get you fired and ruin your life. You're not saying any of that to the student, but she's acting like that's but he's not making light of her, her feeling about the way that you're treating her, but he is making light of your feeling based on the facts that you've been told by these people. It's not even like, you're not even necessarily going off your feelings. You're like, you're, they're telling me <laughs> that they're going to exactly. ruin my life. Uh, that's crazy. Absolutely. So they ended up, um, I, I had my peers who are like, I can't believe this is happening. This is outrageous. In fact, they would call the students woke superheroes. Mm -hmm. That they're, they're in the woke Olympics. Who's mm -hmm. going to be the wokest of them all? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the wokest of them all? <laughs> you know? And so behind closed doors, but a lot of people are afraid of losing their jobs. Um, I got passed up for a promotion for that very reason. Mm -hmm. um, the the lady said, "Well, I, I won't mention your name because I was I'm I'm really strong in certain areas." And she's like, "Wow, your skill set fits what I need for this position." Yeah, and it would have been a promotion for me 
And so weeks later, she said, I can't, I, I cannot promote, I can't hire you for this position because I'm afraid that he's going to do to me what he's done to yeah. you. Yeah. Guilty by association. Yeah, exactly. So it, it turned into, um, a disaster. I ended up getting switched into a different program, a doctor doctoral program, where I, I did pretty well with those students. And um, it didn't matter. I had good evaluations. The students said really nice things about me. Didn't matter at all. Um, he still decided to take me out of my classes and put me on administrative duties. And so... I'm like, what a colossal waste of my skill set and my, your five graduations. Yeah, my five graduations. Exactly. So yeah. And, and now as of recently, it's been, it's an all out total going totally against you. And what I mean by that, I had three students um, during the summertime who cheated on an assignment and I should rather say, I'm going to say it this way. It appears to me that they cheated because I have evidence that they cheated. So I yeah. better say it that way. In any case, that didn't matter. I was told to um, drop that assignment for those three students only, and that their appearance in an academic hearing would be removed from their record. Hmm. So I, I dropped the assignment for all of the class because I didn't want to do, I'm not gonna do that for three students. That's right. completely unfair. And I'm going to take these remaining 150 points because it was 150 points remaining. And I'm going to divvy them up between three, three, like 50, 50, 50, and put those two towards their other assignments that they completed. And whatever the grade is, that's what it is. Well, I had one young man the, who I who I believe cheated. He, they were not satisfied with his grade. And because they were not satisfied, they asked me to change it. I said, no. I'm not doing that. His grade is what it is. So the chair, it's a new chair. She moved me out of my position. She, um, excuse me, let me say that better. She removed me as a professor of the class, named herself the professor of my class, and went in to change my grades. Mm. That is what the dean said to me. She needed to do it so she could change my grades. Why is anyone changing my grades? Mm -hmm. That happened. After um, I insisted that this was morally wrong, it was an, un, totally unethical and it was fraudulent. They, they said, okay, fine, you go ahead on. You you're gonna leave the grade as it is? I said, yes, I am. And what the chair told me, she said, well, you know what? If you do, then the young man is gonna appeal his grade. And when he appeals, he will um, win his appeal. His grade will be changed that way. And I said, well, fine, I'll appeal that appeal. And she said, well, this grade is going to be the same. It's not going to. So in other words, we're going to rule against you. And I said to her, you know, afterward, I said, let me make sure I'm clear. Did you just give the outcome of two hearings before that happened? Yeah. Sure enough, while I was away at a conference, um, the young man um, did go on and file a great grievance with no meeting with me, which is a policy. That's the first thing we're supposed to do. They were supposed to get my documentation, didn't get anything from me. They ruled in his favor and then asked me to change the grade. I said, this is, this is completely wrong. Mm -hmm. So that's where I am right now. And the, and, and the final piece of that is I can't even get in my class yeah. because I can't even use my information 
that I have to support my judgment, the chair instead is in the class making her own assumptions about a class she never taught. And they're basing the decision to support this young man off of what she's saying about my class and my resources that I can't even access. So that's where I am now. This has been like a full-blown onslaught, really, in my opinion, to just um, to go against me for whatever, in any capacity, any way possible. Um, and really, it just feels like just an outright assault. I don't, I don't know another way to say yeah. it. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And it's, it's deeply disturbing to hear what's going on. And I have small children that won't be thinking about college for many years. But I mean, when my husband and I talk, we're like, do we even want to encourage our children to go to university? Like I'm looking at trade school. Okay. I think maybe this is the direction we want to go. Let's, let's do your speed round questions right now. We got 10 questions for you. And then after that, I would love for you to share, um, of course, any final thoughts you have. And then also if there's a way that our listeners can support you in some way or advice you have for them, if they're also concerned and they want to, you know, do make some kind of change, maybe they're not, maybe they can't help you directly, but you're like, this is what needs to happen in order for universities to get on the right track or whatever. I would love some of your thoughts on that. But right now let's do something a little bit more fun, <laughs> which is our speed round questions. There's 10 questions. There's no right or wrong answer. This is just for fun. Um, are you ready for them? Yes. Okay. Question number one. Do you think BET serves a worthwhile purpose today? No. What's the best book you've read this year so far? Oh, um, oh gosh, what's it called? Ah, the best book. Um, I think it's a book called The Choice. Okay. I'll link up with you after this and I'll make sure we get the right book and we'll link it in the show notes. Where is there actual systemic racism in America today? Um... I think there's systemic racism in in the prison system and in the education system. Is naming a sports team the Redskins wrong? No. Is there a sport that you would like to see in the Olympics that currently isn't? Professional wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> like John Cena type wrestling, The Rock? John Cena, Mama Reigns. Okay, okay. <laughs> what's, the, uh, what's the wildest conspiracy theory you low-key kind of believe is true that black people are the two jews what is the best part of being black oh i just did a poem on this um our 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 resilience our strength black history month yay or nay not if there's yay if there is a history month for every other race as well, including the white race, because I have some thoughts about that. Well, maybe this is related, but what is your hottest take, your spiciest take? Well, I'll continue my spiciest. <laughs> I believe that not having white history month is the same as when, like my sister, she, she bought my nephews and um, my nieces Easter baskets and they're enjoying their candy and everything. And, my, my little nephew says, mama, what about yours? She's like, oh, I'm good, baby. Mm-hmm. I don't need it. Mm-hmm. And so it's, she's a parent mm-hmm. to these little children. I think when we don't have White History Month, 
it's like that. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. we don't need that. You got, y'all have your history. Yes, you have your history. Mm-hmm. When we have White History Month, then it's equivalent. Everyone is equal. There is no, I'm the parent. Oh, you, you let me celebrate you. Yes, let me celebrate you. There's none of that patronizing yeah. attitude. Yeah, yeah, good point. And um, question number 10, your final question. Should the United States keep daylight savings time? um probably not because it's aggravating (laughs) pretty much everybody says that i don't think i've had one person say they like it so i don't even know why we're still doing this if i was running for president number one issue get rid of (laughs) it really really tackling the important issues that are at the top of american minds anyways thank you for humoring me with those 10 questions um i would love your final thoughts advice for our listeners right now absolutely as far as what I think um, other academics can do, stand up for yourself. I, I want to say something. This is important. I am the fifth black woman in um, the past two and a half years to be moved, pushed out, forced out, and however you say it, out of this particular school of social work in the past two and a half years. It's not you mean across us universities or your university specifically? This specific school. Oof at this specific school in this specific school of social work. I am the fifth in two and a half years. I think that is very telling. When a bunch of fish die in a lake, people aren't so much looking at the fish, they're looking at what's going on with this lake. Mm -hmm. So there's an environmental piece here that needs to be considered. The other ladies are wonderful and they're dynamic and they left. Mm -hmm. I... I'm saying something, I'm going to stand up and I encourage others. The more we emphasize that this kind of treatment is wrong, you cannot indoctrinate people and penalize them when they don't follow your way. The more we say something, I think that's stop leaving quietly or talking in our own little circles, start talking. There are people who are out there with megaphones, spotlights, everything possible to get their point across that men give birth to, why are we not standing up saying something? Mm-hmm. Especially when it's so ludicrous and it's not true. Mm-hmm. So that's my advice. We got to stand up. We have to talk and we have to talk loudly. And we have to make sense when we talk. Yeah. Thank you so much for having the moral courage to do so. Um, Thank I hope you. that we can stay in touch that you, I mean, actually, even some of these speed round questions you answered, I'm like, we got to have you writing for the journal. I would love to feature you not just in the, on the podcast, but in our, on our Substack page as well. So we'll talk more about that. I think our audience is going to be disturbed, but also inspired by you, you know, because there are these examples of people standing up, having the moral courage to say, Hey, this is wrong. And then taking the fallout and the fallout can be devastating, but you're going to still have your dignity <laughs> after it's all said Absolutely. and done, right? You hopefully will be able to sleep at night knowing that you did what you believe was the correct, true, and just thing. So thank you so much, Tiffany. Um, I appreciate you coming on and hear what Free Black Thought is all about. So I can't praise you highly enough. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Free Black Thought Podcast.